Malachi 1, 1 through 15. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you have never enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I, make t that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, or God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you humbly today, Lord. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for this place of worship and this family to gather together. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be inspired, Lord, and we would learn and gain more knowledge and wisdom from your words today. Um, and God, would you bless, bless Brent uh, and, and the message that he has to bring us, Lord. And I pray that we would go forth and, Lord, change our hearts that we would apply this to our lives and that this would become real. We love you, Lord. Pray that you would turn our hearts to love you more. Amen. Good morning. Um, hey, guys, welcome to Aletheia. Uh, my name is Brent, and I'm one of the elders here. And uh, today I have the privilege of introducing us to the book of Haggai. Um, who here has ever studied the book of Haggai? <laughs> I see, like, one or two hands. So yeah, it's one of the, the minor prophets, and today we get to just jump right in. Um, but before we dive in, there's, there's a question that's been uh, nagging at my soul and just kind of sh this heart-shaking question that, that I have to ask. And the question is this, whose kingdom are you building? Think about it. Where do you spend the bulk of your time and energy? What are you most focused on? Where do your thoughts and your plans kind of always run back to? 
Are you focused more on building your own house, your own life, your own career, your own personal kingdom? Or do you have eyes set on one higher than yours? Is your soul focused on getting your degree, raising perfect kids, perfect grades, being the best employee or employer, or having the best reputation? Whose kingdom are you building? You see, none of these things are inherently bad. All of them are actually, can be really, really good. Being a good employee can bring honor and glory to God. Being an amazing parent can bring honor and glory to God. Being an amazing student and going and doing all of these things with the right perspective can bring honor and glory to God and build the kingdom. But you have to have them in the right order. And so today, prioritizing the things of God over our own wants and desires is where we find ourselves. About a year ago, I got the opportunity to move up within um, the company I work for, the Hippo. Um, I used to be just uh, a local manager of the local shops, um, of a coffee shop called Wyatt's and, and the Hippo, which is a really cool popsicle shop. And, and so I was invited to move up and help manage all of our retail stores and help build out new stores and, and manage and pour into people I already loved. And, and it was a really cool opportunity. And it was like a dream job. But as I started this position, I started realizing it came with a lot of hours, <laughs> a lot of traveling, a lot of responsibility, emergency situations that just demanded my time all the time. I started only having the weekends here in Gainesville, and, and those weekends I'd want to fill with everything possible. Someone wanted to do something, I'd be like, yes, let's do it. Someone wanted to hang out, I'd be like, oh, yeah, let's go play Frisbee, let's go for a run, let's do all these things And Sunday nights, yeah, community group at my house, let's do it. And more and more, what I've realized over this past year is as I said yes to all these really good things, every time I said yes, I had to say no to something else, mowing my lawn, taking care of my house, loving my roommates well, uh, building relationships with my friends that had just moved back into town. Every time I said yes to something, something else, I had to say no to. And, and so then some of the things I was saying no to were the things that were of greater importance. Some of the things that I was letting be pushed out of my life were things like spending time with God doing stuff here at the church that would build the kingdom. Not saying that anything I was saying yes to was wrong. In fact, some of that stuff was really good, but it came at a cost of the better, of, of the things that God had called me to stand fast on. So sadly, it was easier for me because God isn't physically here saying, give me your time, give me your resources, look to me, serve me, He's not standing in front of me saying, hey, come to me. It was easy for me to say, you know what, God, I'll, I'll spend time with you tomorrow morning because this morning I want to go hang out with that person. You know what, God, I'll, I'll do that tomorrow. And so slowly my priorities this past year have been kind of shifting, and, and it kind of scares me. <laughs> um, and so by, I feel like all of us are kind of in this this tension with 
with our priorities, the things we need most to survive, the never-ending torrent of needs is often the thing that we neglect the most. Can you guys feel that tension? What I struggle with and what the people of Haggai, which we're about to open up to, struggled with is, is a priority problem, is a focus on their own kingdoms rather than a focus on God's kingdom. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Haggai. Um, it's tiny little two-chapter book, so it's easiest to go to Matthew first and then just kind of scroll back three, chap- or three books. So um, open up with me, and let's just go ahead and dive in. We're going to read verse one together. Um, so it says this, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Wow, this is powerful. <laughs> no, not really. But without some context, you have nowhere, you have no idea where we're, we're at. So let's, let's rewind a little bit to the very, very beginning. Yeah, the beginning. In the beginning was God. Think about that for a second. Before the earth was created, before the heavens, before the stars, in the beginning was God Almighty, perfectly content with who he was, perfectly in community among himself. He was all there was. And out of his thoughts, And out of his desire to bring glory to himself, he created. He created the heavens and the earth, and he created human beings in his image to bring glory to himself, to be his image bearers to the world that he created, to to be fruitful and multiply, and to be his reflection to the world. And somewhere along the lines, he said, this is the law that I want you guys to fall under. These are the things I want you to do. And human beings rebelled. Started with Adam and Eve, and they were cast out of the garden, and then it went to just the peoples. And they rebelled so much that in Genesis 6, God's like, I can't do this anymore. There has to be a hard reset. And so he floods the entire earth, wiping out all of humanity except for one man who was seeking after him and that one man's family, Noah. So Noah builds an ark, they survive the flood, and then they start repopulating the earth. Noah's three sons and their, and his, their wives, and they just start procreating, being fruitful and multiplying. And things are great, and it's awesome, and God blesses them, and things start happening. But then, as they multiply, they start rebelling again against God, and they decide we can build something so big and so tall it'll get us to the heavens. And they build this huge tower, basically, to oppose God, and God says, "Uh uh-uh. Scrambled their languages, mixed them up. And so then there was a whole bunch of different people with different languages, and then they started to rebel individually and amongst small groups and started their own religions that had to do with fulfilling their own desires, often worshiping sex and worshiping things that made them feel good. And in the midst of all this, God's idea of us being his image bearers kind of 
was starting to get muddied, and so he called one man out and said, Abram, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which means you're going to be a father of nations. You're going to be more, and I'm going to choose you and your descendants to be my image to the rest of the world. I'm going to bless you even when you don't deserve it so that the rest of the world can look at you and your people and see me. So the rest of the world can say, look what the God Almighty has done to protect and to shield and to grow this people. And people will be drawn to see my glory and be pleased with me. And so he called Abraham out. And Abraham, although he was 100 years old and his wife was 90 and he didn't have any kids, he's like, I'm going to make you a father of nations. Abraham's like, oh, okay, sure, God. So follows him, gives him a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob, and then Jacob gets renamed Israel. Then Israel, Jacob, has 12 sons, and those become the tribes of Israel. And due to them losing their perspective and losing their priority and building their own kingdom, they sell one of their brothers into slavery. And that brother ends up in Egypt, and through crazy circumstances, this guy Joseph becomes second in command in the biggest kingdom, the most powerful kingdom at the time, and God uses that because then a famine hits the land, and Joseph's there, and his brothers come, and redemption happens, and God uses sin and uses a broken thing to save his people, and they are in Egypt, and Pharaoh gives them a huge tract of land, and again, God blesses them, and they multiply, and then another Pharaoh comes along, and says, ooh, these people, they're perfect for being slaves. I'm going to enslave them. And so 400 years of slavery happens. And then God's like, no, I want to again show my glory to the world. I want to continue pursuing my people and let the whole world see who I am. So patiently he decides to raise up this guy Moses. And Moses comes along, and there's plagues. And God uses him just to display his power. And in the 10th plague, he literally kills the firstborn of every Egyptian, livestock and human, Finally, that breaks Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's like, get out. Take your people and leave. But not for very long. (laughs) As the people are leaving, out, kind of starting to get away, Pharaoh's like, who's going to build my temples? No, I need those guys. So he takes his army and follows them and kind of corners them at the Red Sea. And so people start freaking out a little bit. God has done all this already, but they're like, oh, what's going to happen? So God tells uh, Moses, Put your staff in the sea, and then he parts the Red Sea. Huge, great, huge thing happens, and the people walk across safely, and Pharaoh's army pursues, and the sea caves in around them and wipes out the whole army. God's power on display, really, really cool. Fast forward a little bit. They try to go enter the promised land, and so not too many years later, um, they see the promised land. They send in all of these is it 12, one from each tribe, spies to go check it out. Two of them come back and say, this is exactly what God has said. It is the land of milk and honey. God is so good and he's going to give it to us. But the other 10 were like, there's giants in the land. There's no way we can take care of these giants. Like, we can't take them out. And the people, again, even God's chosen people, after seeing all that God had done for them, rebel and say, we're not doing that. We we don't want to go against those giants. God had just rescued them from the greatest nation on earth. And yet they're like, "Uh -uh." so God's like, all right, we're just going to wait 40 years until all of these older people, the leaders die off, and then a new generation will walk into the land. And so with Caleb and Joshua, they enter the land 40 years later, and they take over, and God blesses them, and God gives them a land. And there was hundreds of years, a couple hundred years of prosperity and growth. 
little things happened and God raised up a judge, another judge, and to refocus the people of Israel and to remind them they were his and that he was their king and he would always be there to protect them. But then a couple hundred years later, the people are like, give us a king. We don't want to just have God as a king. We don't want to just have a random person only come when, when trouble comes. We want a king, a human being, that, so we can be like everyone else. God had called them to be separate, called them to be holy, called them to be something different, and yet they said, we want to be like everyone else. So God says, Samuel, anoint Saul. And so Samuel anoints Saul, and at first he's a pretty good king. He leads them to victory, and then he turns into a horrible king, <laughs> horrible. And so God kind of takes Saul down and he anoints David. And David is considered a good king, a king after God's own heart, yet he was a murderer and an adulterer. That gives us some hope. (laughs) Um, Because if David, a good king, and a murderer and an adulterer is considered good, then then there's some forgiveness and there's grace in there. And so God again was pursuing and showing patience. And, And then David has a son, Solomon, and Solomon comes and God tells Solomon to build him his temple. Finally, he would have a place, a place on earth that would be magnificent and holy and big so that people would see a physical place where his manifest presence would be seen and experienced and the people would rally around him and grow with him. So Solomon builds the temple. After Solomon dies, his sons fight over the land and 10 tribes go north and create the kingdom of Israel and Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes stay in Judah and for a couple hundred years, there's two separate kingdoms. The kingdom in the north, they never really had a good king. They were constantly rebelling. They were worshiping idols. And God basically, the Assyrians rose up and just took them out, wiped them off the face of the planet, took all, 12, all 10 tribes up there into exile, and they were decimated. But because there was a righteous king at that point on the throne of Judah, God protected Judah and protected the line of David. And a hundred years later, though, there were kings that brought them back to God, but most of the kings were completely idolatrous and invited craziness to happen, prostitution to happen in the temple. There was just crazy things. And so God finally said, all right, I'm raising up Babylon, and Babylon's going to come and take take you out. But I'm not forsaking you. Look at Jeremiah 29 with me real quick. And, um, in the middle of Babylon invading and carrying off all of his people, Jeremiah says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, good and not for evil, to give you future and a hope Then you will call upon me and come to pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your hearts. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Even in the midst of God's punishment to his people, he says, don't worry, I am with you, and I am for you, and I'm protecting you but this is for your good. You need this because you need to realize that it's about me and my kingdom, not about you. And you were called to a purpose, to be a light to the rest of the world, to show the rest of the world who I am, not who you are. And so 
I'm sending you into exile to refine you, to call you back, to make you focus. And so during this exile, you see people like Daniel raise up. You see the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so many cool things happen that by the time the 70 years are almost up and the Persians take over the Babylonians, King Cyrus knows Daniel and he has great respect for the God of Israel and the God, creator God of all the universe. So he says, you know what? You Jews, go back, build your temple. So King Cyrus says to all of his, his land, which is basically the whole known um, land at the time, and he's like, send the Jews back. Wherever you come from, give them money. He took all the stuff that was ransacked from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken and sent it back to rebuild the temple. He financed all of it and said, go back, rebuild the temple to your God and rebuild the city of Jerusalem so that your God can be praised. So about 50,000 Jews decide to answer the call and go and leave their captivity and go and rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. And it's led by these two guys. And they get back and they lay the foundations. In about three years, they completely remove a lot of the old stuff and lay the foundations and get ready to build the temple. But after about three years, the foundations laid, the altars placed, Somehow, they just stop. They lost sight of what God had called them to do. And this is where we pick up Haggai. It's been 16 years since they finished the foundations of the temple, and nothing else has happened. So Haggai comes in. Verse 1 again, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. So this is about 520, August 29th and 520 BC. So 520 years before Christ, God speaks. This is the first time God speaks to his people since the Babylonian exile. Really cool stuff happening here. The word comes to Haggai. No one knows his background. He's just a guy who receives the word of the Lord. And so he, he, five times throughout this book, he says, prophet Haggai, the prophet Haggai. I think he said it most often just to remind himself of the weight of being a prophet, the weight of being the messenger of God. And so, and this is written mainly to two people, Zerubbabel, which literally means seed of Babylon. And this is the son of Shealtiel, the grandson of uh, Jehoiakim, which is the last king of Judah. And so he is the heir of the Davidic throne, of King David's throne, he's the heir. And through him, later on, we'll see Jesus comes. And then Joshua, who's the high priest, when the Persians took back over, they gave the people that, were conquered their, their independence, independence to worship. And so Joshua had been high priest for a little bit in the kingdom, and so he goes back to help rebuild the temple. And so Joshua comes from Aaron's line. Aaron was Moses' brother, the first high priest. And so you have these two people, and let's pick up in verse two. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? 
So for 16 years, the people had done nothing to build the temple. They built the foundation and then they just stopped. The sin of the people was procrastination. Yes, Haggai uses the term these people rather than my people. Most of the time when God refers to his people, he says my people. But right now he says these people because it, it's describing God's frustration, his, his contempt for their lack of following him. And why did the community feel it wasn't time to build the to renew the construction of the temple, it could have been a number of things. There, it was tough times. Their resources were few. The Persians were having some issues with giving them permits. Um, the 70 years of the temple might not have been completely, so some people might have been like, the prophecies, we got to wait a couple more years. Whatever it was, they were just excuses. Ezra talks about it in Ezra 4, 5, and 6, or 4 through 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So rather than pushing through the discouragement and fear, the people of Israel, God's chosen and elect, gave up. Their priorities somehow got out of whack and they lost sight of who they were and what they were called to do. So God asks through Haggai this rhetorical question, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? They had already gathered the cedar. They already had tons of stone from the demolished temple. They just had to go and like dig it up and then replace it. They had all the resources, and yet they weren't doing anything. Cyrus, the king, originally gave them a huge grant. So they had already purchased a lot of the stuff they needed to build the temple, but it was just sitting there. So although the Lord had commissioned them and provided for them, little things from outsiders, little frustrations had taken them off track. And at some point, their priorities shifted. They I'm sure many of them saw the wood just sitting there and were like, huh, well, we can't really build a temple right now, so why don't we put that in our homes? <laughs> Let's not let it rot and go to waste. It, it says they lived in paneled homes, which Second Kings doesn't just say that's luxury. Yeah, that's luxury, but that's ostentatious. That's like more than just luxury. And so they weren't just living lavish lives, they were living lavish lives on what God had provided for his own house. And so God's saying, wake up, people. Consider your ways. And so, um, so they were called back to rebuild the temple of God. This is so different from the attitude of David. David basically begged God, I, I can't stand the idea that you're living in a tent while I'm living in a palace. God, let me build you a temple and yet it was Solomon who got to build it. The people of Israel instead were like, I'm going to build palaces for myself. I'm going to build comfortable homes for myself, and God can wait because it's hard right now to do that. Um, these people had voluntarily left their homes in Babylon and wherever they were and had come back for this one calling, and yet they had just lost track of it. Yes, how often does this describe our lives? 
How often do we choose the easy path and build our own kingdoms at the expense of the calling God has placed on us? How often do I, like the Jews, put my personal comfort above the calling God has placed on my life? So picking up in verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does not put them into a bag, or does so to put them into a bag of holes. It's almost as if God was saying, what you've been working so hard to do, I've made even harder, not out of anger or frustration, but so that you would look up and realize it's not you who's supposed to get it done, but me. Haggai calls people to consider your ways. An honest look at their lives would reveal that their lives aren't being blessed. Haggai points out inadequate harvest, sown much and harvested little, inadequate supplies, not enough food and drink to go around, inadequate wages, cost of living is higher than their wages, so it seems as if their purses are just have holes. No matter what, it's just going out. The whole time God is letting this happen, he's gently trying to tell them to look up. Come to me and I will make it happen. Pray to me and I will make the way straight. I will take care of it. But look up. Because how many times do we feel like the Israelites where no matter how much we work and toil, our bank accounts always seem empty. No matter how much we try our hardest to do these things, it, it, it just seems futile. God's saying the same thing to us. I'm making it hard so that you realize you can't do it without me. You're not supposed to do it without me. Look up. I'm here. I'm ready. I'm waiting. Consider your ways. But they never did. They just gave up and lost focus. Whose kingdom are you building? Picking up in verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says it a second time. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Why was God so concerned with building the temple? You see, the temple was the center of the religious life for the people. At the temple, the rituals that, and the festivals and all the things that happened at the temple were to remind the people that they needed redemption. That they, there was a penalty of sin and that penalty was death. They had a whole sacrificial system that just reminded them that they were in desperate need of God. Basically, the temple was a daily physical and spiritual reminder that they needed God. So the temple would be the way that the people of God would be held together until Christ came, till the ultimate temple came. So Haggai lays out two main reasons to rebuild the temple. One, for the pleasure of the Lord. The highest motivation for any believer, whether it's a Jew back then or for a Christian now, is to please God. And when you're pleasing him, 
gosh, it feels good. When you are walking to please him, something just changes in your attitude, in your walk, and it's just joy-filled even in the trials. God delights in the labor of his people done in love for him. The Lord delights in his people coming to him and delighting in him. The second reason was for his glory. At the least, the completion of the temple would declare to the world that the God of the Jews was worthy of something grand, was worthy of worship of the Jews. The whole reason the temple for the temple is so that God could be known by the Jews, that his place would have a a, a physical place where people could come and meet God and dwell with him, that his presence, his Shekinah glory would reside. In the original temple of Solomon, there was the ark and there was a whole bunch of stuff, but like God's physical manifest presence was there constantly. So much so that the, the priest going in once a year would have died if they weren't right with God. His presence was manifest there. So the whole point of the temple was for God to be known, for his glory to be revealed and to lay the foundation so that he could one day bring the real delight of all nations, Jesus. Let's continue in verse nine. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own houses. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. Because the temple lies in ruins, the people and the people have busied themselves with their own kingdoms, God allowed drought desolation. No dew means no crops. They didn't get rain most of the time, so dew was how everything grew. But here's where it gets fun. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord, their God, had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you. <laughs> I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirits of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They listened and worked was resumed on the temple. And work was resumed with the right spirit, with a divine blessing, and with haste. God awakened them from their slumber and their indifference. They repented and obeyed. This is the first time, one of the only times, where a prophet said, repent and do something, and the people listened. And <laughs> it's really cool to see. Because 
when that happens, the Lord said, I am with you. The whole point of all of it are those four words, I am with you. It's beautiful. They obeyed the calling the Lord had had made on their lives and he blessed them with himself. Not physical, financial gain, not anything else but himself. And when he blessed him with himself, everything else came. The good news of God is still that same offering that he is with us. The good news of the gospel is that he wants to be with us. He wants to walk through life with us. With the temple rebuilt, the real pleasure of the Lord came 500 years later. God himself put on flesh. And John 1 says that he dwelt among us. He became one of us. You guys, this God in flesh, his name was Jesus. Jesus, the savior of the world, grew up among humble men. He knew pain and loss. He knew joy and triumph. He knew what it meant to work and toil, and he knew betrayal by his family and his friends. This Jesus was fully human. He had the whole spectrum of human life. He experienced it all. So what we go through, our God has gone through and can relate with and knows it. Whatever it is that we're dealing with, Jesus understands. He was dedicated at the same temple when he was a baby that the Israelites were rebuilding, and he taught in that temple throughout his ministry. When he was still young, he read Isaiah 61 at the temple And at the cross, he fulfilled it. Isaiah 61 says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prisons to those who are bound. This is still the same thing. Jesus is doing this to people now to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress, beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Because Jesus paid the penalty of sin that separated us from God. And by his death and his body being broken, his blood being shed, the veil of the temple, the thing that separated us from God in the temple, ripped. And from that point on, it was a statement to the world that through Jesus, he can not just be with us in a physical presence of the temple, but now through Jesus, he can be with us every moment of every day, wherever we go With Christ, he can go with us, and he wants to be with us. The good news of the gospel through Christ is that we get God. (laughs) Through Christ, we can live connected with him the way that Adam and Eve lived connected with him before the fall. 
Is it perfect? No. Will we still sin? Yes. Will we fall? Yes. But through Christ, we can boldly approach the throne of grace, completely blameless. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Through Jesus, God finally is beginning the restoration of all things, as 1 Corinthians 5 talks about. And more than that, he invites us into that same ministry of reconciliation to share with the world this good news that the God who created everything wants us to know him and walk with him. Doesn't want to leave us alone as orphans anymore, but to be a glorious father holding our hands in the midst of everything in life. Jesus' last words on earth to his disciples are found in Matthew 28. And it says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Because this doesn't mean we stop doing the things that we're already doing. It doesn't mean that we add anything extra to our lives. This should more accurately be said, as you live, as you go through life, as you are doing the normal things, as you go to school, as you go to work, as you are a mom, as you're a dad, as you go to school and teach kids, whatever you're doing as you go to the gym, whatever Make disciples. Be a light. Be part of this ministry of reconciliation. Share this amazing news that the God of the universe wants to be with us and doesn't want to leave us alone to walk through life in despair. Guys, we have this amazing privilege God of the universe wants a relationship. And he promises that he will be with us to the end of everything. So our response, you know, there's kind of two kinds of faith that we see in Haggai. One was this kind of indulging faith, self-indulging faith. Like the Jews in the beginning, this faith is just in it to receive whatever they can from God, to get the good stuff. And then whatever's left over, they might give back to him. Whatever time is left over, okay, God, you can have that. Whatever's left over when I consume everything I want, okay, God, you can, you can have the, le the leftovers. This, anytime it starts costing anything, this faith is, is just thrown out the window. But what the gospel calls us is a self-denying faith, the faith where you pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus. This faith puts a calling and a ministry of God above our personal wants and desires. This kind of faith is, looks for ways to give back to God and to give back to his people and to be a city on a hill, the salt of the earth, the thing that sets people looking at God and saying, wow, I need him. Wow, I want that. This self-denying faith is what this world is looking for. This, yes, we were all created to worship something, and when we're not worshiping God, we fill it with all these things that just don't satisfy. And when 
we start worshiping God, he satisfies us so much. And then puts on our lives this calling to share that with other people and call them into the same. So like the Israelites, we have this opportunity to respond. God says to respond with haste, go and do it right now. Go up to the mountains and get the trees and start building right now. And the people do. This week, today, like Haggai said twice, I'm asking the same thing. Consider your ways. We're about to start a new semester. In Gainesville, this is like the beginning of a year. (laughs) For most of you students, you're starting a new semester. For most of you parents, it's the beginning of a school year. Even businesses kind of operate on the school system. Consider your ways. Whose kingdom are you pouring into? What needs to change in your life to get your focus back on God's kingdom and to take it off of building your own house and your own kingdom? As we get ready to take communion, you guys, we do this every single week. If you're a Christian, we invite you to come and and partake. This represents the body of Christ broken for us and his blood shed on the cross for us that washes away the sin and gives us the opportunity to, to know God in a way that we can't outside of it. As we take this before you do, Christians, I challenge you, consider your ways. God's promised that he's with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. But how this year are you going to invite him to be a part of your daily life? What people has he put in your life that you need to be making disciples of? In what ways are you called to be in this ministry of reconciliation, reconciling the fallen, the broken, the needy men and women back to God? Before you take communion, take a minute to consider your ways, and ask God to reveal to you what changes in perspective and priorities you need to have in your own life. Father, I thank you so much that you love us, that you are with us, that if we know Christ, you want to be with us every moment of every day and that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us or to leave us as orphans. But God, just like the Jews back then, you have promised to be with us. Lord, I pray for my friends in this room. Show us what it means to let our lives be focused on you. Show us what it means to build your kingdom, denying ourselves and taking up your calling, your cross, and following you daily, every hour, every moment.
help us to consider our ways and point out to us where we need to change, where we need to repent and come back to you. Jesus, thank you for the cross that brings redemption and reconciliation with you. Help us to cling to it and join you in this process of building your kingdom. Help us to build in our own hearts a temple where you dwell richly every moment. Be with us. We ask this in Jesus' name.